fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We've now completed our study on the kings of Israel and Judah. We left off our study in Malachi's day, which was the last book of the Old Testament. And we left off looking at Malachi's prophecy of the Messiah who was to soon come. He was to be preceded by one who was called Elijah. But I remind you that all of this is happening over 400 years before Christ actually appears. A little while to God and a little while to us are two very different things. But my question to you this morning is, well, why does God wait so long? What is he waiting on? I remind you that part of the sovereignty of God is not only that he does anything that he desires to do, but he does it when he desires to do it. In our eyes, it often seems that God waits to the very last moment before he works. We would say that he works in the nick of time. But to God who knows the end from the beginning, he always works in the fullness of time. He knows what he's going to do. I likened it one time. I had a, uh, as a chem- chemistry professor from the University of Wyoming, I remember us sitting back 25 years ago talking about this. You know, the old uh, Western where the guy's all tied up and he's sitting on the keg of dynamite. And you got this long string of powder and it's burning and it's getting closer and closer. And we just made notice that God never snuffs it out way out there. He always waits till he gets right up here close, you know, right there at the last instance. And then he snuffs it out. That's the way God works. And if you know the end from the beginning, you can do that. I mean, consider when Israel, the Israelites were backed up against the Red Sea. That's when God intervenes at the critical time. There is an account of an event in David's life. You'll hold your place here. Go over to 1 Samuel 23 a moment. I call it Slippery Rock. I don't know if the actual town of Slippery Rock is named for this event, but the place was called the Rock of Smoothness, and you'll see why. In 1 Samuel 23, one of the many times God delivers David from the hands of Saul, this is probably the most dramatic. 1 Samuel 23, look in verse 25, Saul also and his men went to seek him, that is to seek David. Now keep in mind, David's got about 600 men with him, Saul's got about 3,000. And they told David, wherefore he came down to a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain... And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. In other words, David surrounded. And just at this moment, verse 27, But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste thee, and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place Selah Hamalakuf. Well, I give you the right pronunciation and the right interpretation, but I just call it Slippery Rock. The place where David, the rock where David slipped away from the grasp of the hand of Saul. Do you see 
how God waited for the last instant. It seemed that all was lost. David and his men are surrounded by Saul. Just at that moment, up runs the messenger. The Philistines have invaded and they must turn and leave. God never is a day early, never a day late. I mean, can you imagine in Joshua's day, they marched around Jericho that seventh day seven times and blow the trumpets and it just stands there. And then the next day the walls fall down. Can you imagine Elijah standing up confronting the prophets of Baal, calling for the fire to fall and it falls the wrong day? Do you understand God is never early, never late. He is always right on schedule or from where I've been all week, right on schedule. I don't know how they say that up there. Now, if these matters, these small things are right on time, never early, never late, but right at the appointed instant and moment, would you not expect that the big thing, and the big thing as far as the Bible is concerned, is of course the appearance of Jesus Christ. If these small details are always right on time, right on schedule, would you not expect that the appearance of Jesus Christ would likewise be right on schedule. And that is, of course, what our text is telling us. That it just wasn't whenever. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Turn over to Daniel, the ninth chapter. Daniel chapter 9. All of you, I know I know my heart. I know yours too. So we're always intrigued by prophecy. You know, we always want to know What's going to happen? And here's the infamous prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. Oh me, I just wished I had a cut of the royalties of every book that has been written on Daniel's 70 weeks. They're still selling books by the tons down at the bookstores of people making their prognostications and guesses about the interpretation of what Daniel's talking about here. But look in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 24. Daniel 9 verse 24 Daniel is told that 70 weeks, and keep in mind the word week in Hebrew is like the word dozen in English. Let's say there's a dozen of something, what we mean is there's 12 of them. The word week didn't necessarily mean seven days, it just means seven of something. There are 77s, in other words, 70 weeks, and most scholars believe this is 70 weeks of years, 77s, 490 years, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, sixty-nine weeks in all. Now, I'm not going to take time this morning to give you my slant or my interpretation of Daniel's 70 weeks and how all of this fits and all of the dates, because mainly I don't, honestly, I don't know. I don't know uh, exactly what's the start date, and I don't even know exactly what the end date. Are we talking about till the birth of Christ? Are we talking about to the beginning of Christ's ministry? Now, those are questions. And what this commandment to go forth and build Jerusalem? Are we talking about the commandment in the time of Cyrus? Are we talking about the commandment in the days of Artaxerxes? You know, it's difficult. But I just want to point out this, that as far as God was concerned, 
He knew exactly the time span from the point where the commandment would go forth to build the temple till the coming of the Messiah. In other words, we may wrestle with it. We may not have it exactly. But God knew and it happened right on time. That's my point this evening or this morning. I want to deal with the events that happened between the days of Malachi and the coming of Christ. We speak of this as the intertestamental time or the interbiblical time, that 400-year stretch between when Malachi finished his prophecy and Matthew began. Do you realize there's a lot of time there? Four centuries of history take place between Malachi and Matthew. I want to just sort of bring you up to speed right quick on some of the things that took place during that time. Remember that when we leave off the Old Testament, the Persian Empire is in power. The Jews are back in Israel, but they're there basically under the auspices of Persian kings, at the permission of Persian kings, and they're basically a province of the kingdom of Persia. That's the way things will go on for another hundred years or so until a very remarkable personality comes upon the scene. He is the man we know in history as Alexander the Great. He's a Grecian. And in 331 B.C., about a hundred years after the time that Matthew Malachi wrote what he did, he conquered the nation of Persia or the kingdom of Persia. Uh, we wish we had time to go into some of Alexander's exploits. It is a remarkable study if you'd like to read about it. It is clear to me that God raised this man up. I mean, there is no way to explain what this man did. I mean, literally died as a young man, 30, what is it, 30 some odd, 31, 32, somewhere along in there, died weeping that there were no more worlds to conquer. He conquered the entire known world known to him in that day. An amazing story. Well, Greek language, Greek culture then came upon this area. But when Alexander died, his empire was divided between four of his generals, two of which, um, one took Syria, Seleucia, and the other, Ptolemy, took Egypt. Israel was halfway between those two. And they fought like cats and dogs for the next hundred years right over the top of Israel. In other words, for a while, uh, Israel would be under the dominion of Syria. For a while, Israel would be under the dominion of Egypt. In 167 B.C., a very interesting thing happened. The Syrian general or the Syrian ruler, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was run out of Egypt by the Romans and he vented his wrath upon Israel. He forbade the Jews to keep the Sabbath, to circumcise their children. He had his soldiers search the homes looking for copies of the Torah uh, to burn. And finally, in his wrath, he offered a sow on the temple altar and erected an idol to Zeus on that spot. You begin to understand, if you know anything about Judaism, you know what that did. That, in their eyes, desecrated the temple, and the daily sacrifice was stopped for a period of about three and a half years, and a revolt took place by the Maccabean family, led by the Maccabean family. Mainly Judas Maccabeus is the principal character here, 
And he and his band of followers, in a very valiant effort, uh, finally were able to overthrow Syrian rule. They re-cleansed the temple, rededicated it, and began the sacrifices again. By the way, if you have any Jewish friends who celebrate Hanukkah, Hanukkah taking place about the same time of the year as our Christmas, what they're celebrating when they celebrate Hanukkah is this re-cleansing of the temple that took place after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. So they're celebrating the re-cleansing and the re-inauguration of sacrifice in that day. So if you wish them happy Hanukkah, that's what you're wishing them, the commemoration of that event. Now for the next hundred years or so, they actually enjoyed a period of more or less peaceful self-rule until the year 63 B.C. when Pompey, the Roman general, came in and conquered it. In fact, Pompey even walked it right into the Holy of Holies, found it empty, by the way. Uh, there was no Ark of the Covenant, just a rock. That's all that was in there in Pompey's day. But the Romans then came into the picture, and they will rule till the appearance of Jesus Christ. So that's sort of the political things that happen. That's very sketchy. That's a rough outline, but that's just hitting the highlights. In other words, the Persian Empire is in place when we leave Malachi. In this interim time, the Greek Empire comes. Alexander the Great conquers the known world, including this area. He dies. It's divided between his generals. They continue for another hundred years or so. Finally, the Romans come in and conquer it. So we have Persia, Greece, and Rome. But of more interest to us is the social changes that took place, the religious changes. There was tremendous pressure because of the influence of Greek civilization for the people of Israel to embrace Grecian culture, and many of them did. The Greek language became more or less the universal language of the ancient world. They, there was pressure to be Grecian in the way you dressed, in the way you talked, the way you conducted business. Now, we have the same thing going on today in the world because of American influence. I mean, we go down to Mexico, be going down there in a little bit, get down in these slums of Cordoba, and here the kids are playing video games, you know, right out of the United States. Up in Toronto this past week, one of the scenes is sort of a shock culturally because there's so many ethnic groups in Toronto, a huge city. I wasn't expecting a city on the order of Chicago, but it's that large. But uh, one of the things that I thought was sort of striking is you see a lot of Muslims, you know, with the women with their veils and headdress. Well, one day I'm sitting at a red light, and around the corner come three Muslim women, all dressed in their traditional garb, except they've got tennis shoes on and they're jogging. And you say, what's wrong with this picture here? In other words, do you see the influence of a, the American way of life even upon these traditional Muslims, the pressure on them to adopt Western dress, Western culture, Western traditions? Well, that's what was going on in Israel because of the influence of Greek civilization in that day. We find that there are two religious sects that grow up and arise out of a response to this pressure. They're the two sects that we know in the New Testament as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, you never read about Sadducees and Pharisees in the Old Testament. It's because they arose about 200 years before the coming of Christ. The Sadducees were sort of the liberal Jews of the day. 
They, they didn't mind the influence of Greek culture quite so much. They also denied the supernatural. They were not uh, real strong on the uh, inspiration of Scripture. They basically appealed to the upper classes. In Jesus' day, it was the priests and the ruling classes that were the Sadducees. Then there was a second sect. We know them as the Pharisees. They were sort of the fundamentalists of the day. They were revolting against this Jewish, this pressure to become Greek in your language, in your culture. They were the fundamentalists. They held to the supernatural. They held to the inspiration of Scripture, to the resurrection of the dead, to the existence of angels, all of those things that we read about in the New Testament. The Pharisees had their power more among the common man of the day, not among the upper ruling crust, but the common man of Israel. And it was during this time that the synagogue arose as an institution in Israel. Now, the synagogue is one of those things you just take for granted in the New Testament day. We read of Jesus going into the synagogue and teaching, but you'll not find synagogues mentioned in the Old Testament at all. They arose basically during this interbiblical period of time. Now, that's the kind of changes that were going on. And some have suggested that God was waiting on all of this before he sent his son, before he sent the gospel out into the world, that he was waiting till there was a universal language like Greek, that you could go everywhere in the ancient world speaking Greek and find somebody who would understand you, somebody you could communicate with. It was the universal language of the day. Or that God was waiting on the Romans to put their empire into place because they built all the roads the roots from one place to another. In other words, because of the influence of the Greeks and because of the influence of the Romans, you know, God had a sort of plan to wait till these things were in place and then he would send his son into the world. Well, I find that very doubtful. I don't really think God was waiting on the Greeks and Romans to come do their thing. I think he was waiting on something else. And I believe it is hinted at here in the book of Daniel, here in chapter 9, verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. It seems to me that God was waiting to fully demonstrate the sinfulness, the hideousness of sin. If we think back to the Garden of Eden, one small sin, now I'm small sin I'm putting in quotation marks, you understand there is no such thing as a small sin in the eyes of God. But in our eyes, eating a forbidden fruit seems like a rather minor infraction, does it not? I mean, on our scale of 1 to 10, what constitutes hideous sin? This is probably down there on the bottom somewhere. But it was an act of utter rebellion where man the creature raises up his and bows his neck in the face of God his creator. It is the proto-sin, the first sin. And this one sin enters the world and it begins to run its course. It infects. It's just one generation later that two brothers are out in the field and one of them picks up a rock and kills the other. Fratricide. The first murder one generation after sin enters. Noah lived but ten generations after Adam 
And by that time, sin had increased and had run its course to the point that the world was so wicked that God destroyed it by water. Now, you might think, well, surely they'll learn their lesson now. Surely they'll see the hideousness of sin. Surely they'll cut this out. No, in just three generations after Noah, we have Nimrod come upon the scene who builds Babel, the ancient city of Babylon, from whence idolatry spread and infected all the world. Well, on and on we go. I mean, we have just come through a study of the history of Israel, and it's not their history. I mean, take the great men of Israel, and you'll find men that were hamstrung by sin, men who were sinners, every one of them. We'd look at their kings, and we see that there were every now and then a righteous, a godly man upon the scene, but basically the course of the nation is a downhill course headed for destruction. It was this nation, the nation that was given the revelation of God, that was given the prophets, that was given the scriptures. It was that nation to whom God would send his son for the final, the epitome, if you will, the greatest incident of sin this world has ever seen. You say, well, what was that? It was when man put the Son of God to death on a cross. Here's the final straw, if you will, the final demonstration of how sinful sin is. And along with that comes a second thing, the demonstration of man's inability to be anything other than a sinner. It demonstrates man's utter helplessness not to sin. It proves that he is indeed a slave to sin. It it is mysterious, I will admit, what God was doing with the nation of Israel. Why did he select out of mankind this man Abraham? Why did he separate him from everybody else and then promise to make a great nation with him, of him, make a covenant with his seed? You know the story. And this nation that would come of it would have a special relationship with God. What was God doing in all of that? Why was he doing it? Well, I believe that he's using Israel to show you what all men are like. Uh, let me give you an example. If you've got a well out in your backyard that you uh, draw your water supply from, and you want to know whether the water in that well is okay or not, what do you do? You draw a sample, do you not? And you send that sample in to be tested. And the sample comes back and it says, well, this is okay, this is good water. You continue to drink the water out of that well. Now you might, I suppose, say, well, wait a minute. We only tested a small test tube full of that water. Maybe that water was good, but all this other water was bad. Do you understand what I'm saying? How do we know? Because the sample, it's just the little bit of water that we tested. Well... It's what the character of the little bit of water is that tells you what the character of the whole well is. God is taking a sample of humanity out of the great river of mankind. He takes one sample, Abraham and his descendants, and he begins to deal with them. And he demonstrates with Israel what is true of every man. It's not that Israel somehow stands special or unique, different from everybody else. They're just like us. It's just that God had a special relationship with them. First of all, he gives Israel ever incentive to do good. He promises them ever blessing in the book if they'll just obey him. 
He gives them every motivation not to do evil. For he says that he puts a curse upon them and upon everything they do, everything they touch, if they don't obey him. He gives them the revelation of himself, the light of his knowledge of what is his will for them to do in the law, of how they're to worship him and how to their, how to approach them. You do understand that other nations in the Old Testament age didn't have that information, didn't have that knowledge. I mean, God didn't go to the Egyptians or the Assyrians and tell them these things. I mean, in the Old Testament age, when a prophet opened his mouth and spoke, he spoke in the Hebrew tongue. He spoke in the language of Israel. God was communicating truth to them. And so if motivation is going to make any difference, if education and learning and knowledge is going to make any difference, if reward or inducements to obedience is going to make any difference, surely it would have made a difference with Israel. I'm probably not getting this point across. You take the sample out of the stream of mankind and you give this sample every possible reason to obey God, every possible reason not to disobey. You give it light. You give it the favorable environment and favorable circumstance. You don't give that to the rest, but you give it to this sample. And then what does the sample do? who has all of the advantages, all of the motivation, all of the inducements, well, you send them your son and they put him on a cross. Do you get the point? This is not a bunch of unlearned heathen that is crucifying the Son of God. This is the specially prepared sample. The one that you've told what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes. The one that you've prepared to wait for the Messiah. Do you understand? The very best of circumstances that God can possibly give man the most powerful inducements to obey Him and they crucify His Son. Now you see, I'm not being anti-Semitic here. I'm not looking at the Jew and saying, man, aren't those bad folks over there? I'm saying those folks are just like me and what was in their hearts, the same thing in my heart. And had God put me in their shoes and given me those advantages, given me that light, sent prophets to me, I'd have nailed the hands of the Son of God to that cross. Do you understand? They're just the sample of humanity. And in them, God is demonstrating what lies, what sin lies in the heart of every single man that walks upon this planet. That this thing called salvation is not a matter of motivation. I've wondered, I've shake my head sometimes when I see people headed down the road to utter destruction. Saying no, reward, motivation, inducements just won't do it. It's too strong. It's got too much of a grip on them. It's not a matter of education and learning. You know, if they just were taught better, if they just knew more facts about God. No. It's going to be something else. And I believe that's another thing that God was demonstrating in all of this. It's a demonstration of the utter helplessness of man. And it's going to be a demonstration of God's grace and mercy in sending His Son to do what man could.
could not do, even among the most favorable circumstances imaginable, what man could not possibly do for himself. The mighty Christ is going to come. And notice again here in Daniel 9.24, if you're still there, notice what he's going to do when he comes. He's going to make reconciliation. He's going to reconcile man to God. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. What man could not be righteous under the law, Christ will bring upon man. That the mighty Christ will be able to save from sin this people who could not save themselves. He will bring this chosen people unto God and He will do it through the shedding of His own blood for taking upon Himself what they deserved and He will shower upon them the reward of His righteousness. Now, we had spiritual men in the Old Testament. We had prophets. We had kings. We had priests. We had these anointed offices in Old Testament Israel. But I'm telling you, when he comes, he's going to baptize men in the Spirit. You remember what John the Baptist said? I'll I'll baptize you with water. I'll dunk you in water. When he comes, he'll baptize you in the Spirit. You see, that's what the Old Testament saints who had the Spirit of God couldn't do. They couldn't pass it on. They couldn't give it to somebody else. Do you realize how frustrating that must have been that you have this spiritual man on the throne? And as we saw so often in our study of the kings of Israel, that the man who follows him on the throne, his son, is a scoundrel. I mean, you got Hezekiah, one of the godliest kings Israel ever had, followed on the throne by none other than Manasseh, one of the worst. They couldn't pass it on. Do you understand what that means when John is saying, when he comes, he'll baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He'll be able to give you the Spirit. He can pass it on. I mean, that was one of the peculiar things about Jesus' ministry. He had 12 followers. We call them disciples. And right there in Matthew where they become apostles, where he sends them out, he gives them power over diseases, over demons. He he has power Himself and He's able to give it to them. See if you can find you an Old Testament prophet that could do things like that. You see, that's the difference. Kings could rule men's bodies by outward force and constraint, but this king would come into human history and he would conquer the hearts of men. We, we looked at Paul this morning in Sunday school as he's witnessing to King Agrippa and to the governor Festus. And we notice that it's like Paul is talking down to them. I mean, here he is, the prisoner. You know, they're the kings, they're the guys in authority, and yet Paul is saying, I wish you had what I've got. Everything but these chains. In other words, you don't understand that I'm the one that's got the good stuff. Christ had won his heart. Christ had conquered him. Now, king, I mean, the IRS makes us do it every year. I mean, it makes us, what is, what is that commercial that was on? If you'd rather have a stick in the eye with a hot poker rather than write that check out to the IRS, you know. I understand that. I can relate to that. We do things because we are physically constrained to do it. We're going to get in trouble, going to get thrown in jail if we don't. 
my friend, there are men who follow Jesus Christ and they'll lay down their lives for Him because they love Him. Because they've conquered, He's conquered their heart. They have seen in that cross of Jesus Christ something they don't see anywhere else in this world. They've seen a picture of divine love, the very love of God, something only God would do, lay down His life for sinners. Love divine, said Charles Wesley, all loves excelling. They've seen it in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's a love, as the hymn writer says, a love that will not let them go. A love that has claimed them. The old prophets, they could proclaim God's word, and they did over and over again throughout the Old Testament age. They proclaimed God's word to a nation who wanted nothing of it. But in Jesus Christ, we see God's word incarnate. We see God's word come alive in a person. This is not just someone who tells us what we're to do, but he demonstrates it and he lives it before our eyes. He is one who washes us, that's his words, washes us in his words, washing us in the water of the word, cleansing us, cleaning us up, if you will, through the application of the word of God. I just can picture this in my mind, the Old Testament prophet, how how frustrated he must have been. I mean, Isaiah was called to go out and proclaim a word that would put everybody to sleep. I mean, that was his commissioning. I mean, that's the good part of his job. You know, go and preach to this people what they don't want to hear. Preach it till they go asleep. I've got some experience at that myself. But, you know, what a frustrating task. I mean, where are the reward? You know, where are the people? And yet in the case of Jesus, he goes and he applies that word, changes hearts, cleans up lives, purges and purifies. What's he to do? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. I go on. The priests, another one of those anointed offices, offered their types and their shadows, these animal sacrifices, countless thousands. Josephus says in one of the Passover days in his time, they sent a letter to Caesar trying to impress him with the greatness of Jerusalem and Israel, telling him that at Passover that year they had slain 100,000 lambs. And you get a hint of what the writer of Hebrews was saying, that these priests standing daily offering over and over and over these sacrifices which can never take away sin. And then the great contrast. Here comes the mighty Christ who offers one sacrifice for sins forever. And it's done. It's complete. He has brought us to God, reconciled us, to the God who had every reason to put us in hell. He appeared when, says the writer of Hebrews, He has appeared once in the end of the age by the sacrifice of Himself to bring us to God. Everything, you see, is pointing us to Him. Why didn't God just go ahead and send His Son right after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden? Right after Adam and Eve fell, why didn't he just go ahead and send his son into this world? 
Well, I believe he's going to demonstrate a few things first. He's going to show us how exceedingly vile sin is and how helpless man is in its grip. And then what a wonderful thing this thing called grace is. In the um, theory of evolution, one of the old arguments, it's been done away with these days, by the way, but one of the old arguments for the theory of evolution was that ontology recapitulates phylogeny. David, am I saying that right or I got it backwards? Ontology recapitulates philology. That is, it was held for a long time that you and I, as we developed as embryos, actually went through the stages of man's evolution. We recapitulated the history of man's evolution. It was thought that we actually, as embryos, had gills at one point, and that was sort of recapitulating the fish stage of our evolution. Now, I want to quickly point out that that's all bogus. No one seriously holds that today. Even the most convinced evolutionist does not hold that argument. What they thought were gills turned out to be parts of the inner ear, for instance, not the lungs. But anyway, all of that aside, I think there is some truth to the fact that every man who comes into this world does recapitulate the history that we have talked about this morning, human history. For you see, every one of us enter this world as Adam and Eve after the fall. We we just have one sin against us. Right? Just one. Adam's sin. And then what happens? No sooner do we open our mouth and start talking than we start lying and deceiving. We're talking about Mother's Day today. We'll look our mothers right in the face and we'll tell the biggest whopper. Bold face lie. And we can hardly talk. We can hardly form words before we're lying. The Bible speaks, they come forth from the womb speaking lies. Hardly do we have our minds developed before we begin to lust and to desire, to covet, to be envious, to be jealous, to be self-centered. We, we, we you know, we're sitting in a little playpen with another baby and first thing we know we're in a big fight over the rattler. You know, we want the rattle. Hardly do we learn how to feel. Our emotions develop before we're hating and despising. Do you see what's happening? It is as if we are recapitulating that spread of sin. Just one sin entered the picture, but it began to spread and it infiltrated and infected every area of life, every corner, every nook and cranny of this globe, and sin has infected every area of your life. That's what we mean by the doctrine of total depravity. Not that you're as bad as you can be, but that every single part of your life has been infected by sin, especially your will. Because it is with that will that you bow your neck. And when God says you will, you say, I won't. And when He says you won't, 
you say, I will. Especially the will is infected. Oh, I know you may not commit murder like Cain, mainly because you don't want to be locked up. But you'll use your tongue as the weapon to assassinate someone. No, you may not commit adultery like David, but you will lust in your heart. No, you may not commit thievery like an Achan, but you will covet what is not rightfully yours. Oh, you may be refined and out of fear of man, out of fear of losing your reputation, out of fear of going to jail. You may not commit the outward act, but the root of it all is right here in your heart, waiting for the opportunity to manifest itself. And when and if Christ is presented to us as Christ was presented to Israel, what do we do? No, we do not physically nail His hand to a cross but we take our place with that mob and we scream to the top of our lungs, away with him. We will not have this man to rule over us. You see, it's to that kind of heart that Christ comes. One who would crucify him again if he just could. The worst of men. Lost men. It's to that kind of sinner that Christ comes to save, to redeem, to reconcile us to God, to wash us from our sins, to cleanse us, to transform us, to turn us upside down and inside out to kick self off the throne and to enthrone Jesus Christ in His rightful place in our life. Oh, think of this grace. Think of what happens in salvation that Christ would come to the like of you and me and transform sinners into saints, God-haters into God-lovers, And when does he do it? You know, there's a common notion today that man gets saved anytime he wants to. You know, it's just up to you. God's always there, always wanting to. And, you know, when you get good and ready, you can get saved. Only find one time in the scripture where it speaks of when a person can get saved. It's Paul again given his own testimony, and he puts it this way in Galatians 1.15, but when it pleased God. In the fullness of time. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. When you get saved, if you get saved, it's going to be right on schedule. 
right on God's timetable. Won't be one minute early, one minute late. It'll be right when it pleases God. Now, I don't want you to go away and say, well, you know, the preacher says that it's really nothing for me to do except just sort of sit in my easy chair and wait for salvation to drop in my lap because after all, God's got to save me and I get saved when he wants to. No, you better seek it. You better do your best to find this Savior and this thing called life and salvation. But I want to impress upon you that ultimately this thing is in His hands and not yours. You're the supplicant. Christ is not the beggar outside your heart's door weeping and crying, hoping you'll let Him in. He's on the throne of grace and the knock on the heart's door is from the King of Kings. And you refuse it and you rebel against it at your own risk. He didn't come off that throne to invite you to come to salvation. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, help us to get things straight in our minds. Father, we so want to skew, twist, and pervert things that we would have ourselves in the driver's seat, ourselves calling the shots, ourselves deciding what and when and if you can work. How haughty, how arrogant, how false. May we see ourselves rightly today. You're not in our hands to do with as we please. We're in your hands for you to do with as you please. May it please you to intersect and intercept us in our rebellion. If we're without Christ today, may it please you. To stop us. To apprehend us. To bring us up short. Father, if you could do it to a Christ-hating Saul of Tarsus, surely you can do it in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, show mercy this day on sinners. And Lord, we who know you, oh, may we never get over it. May we never lose sight of what you've done. May we never lose sight of how sinful we were, how wretched, how vile, how hopeless and helplessly lost we were. And may we never get over what you've done in Jesus, our Lord and Master. How you've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and what we wouldn't have done for anyone else. Thank you for Jesus. And may it show, may it stick out in everything we do and how we talk and how we conduct ourselves in this fallen world. May we, Father, as we ought, desire to show and to give what we've found and know everyone around us that they might share in the blessing of knowing Christ use us in that great work and may we Father know that again things are right on schedule Lord we don't know when this universe will be folded up 
when the heavens will be removed as a scroll. We know not the hour nor the day, but we know that you have appointed an hour and a day, and it will surely come when we shall stand before you and give an account. May we, Father, take seriously that knowledge. May we make preparation now while it is still called today. Thank you for the time together today. Bless us. May we leave here encouraged. May we leave here rejoicing in what you've done for us. For we ask it in Jesus, our precious Savior's name. Amen.